Whether or not you're into history, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Welcome to episode 43 of History on Fire. If you want ad-free versions of this episode, you can join the folks donating $5 a month on Patreon for History on Fire, and you get to have episodes with no ads. If you do not mind the ads, we are going to just jump into those. But before we do that, speaking of Patreon, I want to thank two sweet folks Susan Moss O'Donnell and Rob Edinger, who are contributing at the $100 level. Thank you guys so much. With that said, let's jump into the ads. Big thank you to Article.com for sponsoring this episode. These guys sent me some amazing furniture, chairs, tables. My mom has a whole new set of stuff for her living room. Uh, my mom, by the way, she worked in design, so with her expert eye, she could confirm my layman's impressions that this furniture is awesome. It's beautiful, well-made, Scandinavian simplicity, well-designed. Uh, on top of it, not that expensive, because uh, Article is an online-only furniture company, so by eliminating the layers of all the middlemen, they are able to keep the prices low and the quality high. On top of it, they have a great shipping policy, only $49 for no matter how many items you order. You can have like 10 gazillion dollars worth of stuff, still $49 shipping. So not a bad gig. 30-day return policy. And on top of it, they have an offer for you guys. Um, $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim that, visit article.com forward slash history. Again, that's article.com forward slash history. I've been eating Blue Apron for on a weekly basis for the last couple of years and who this has been so good for me. Uh, what can I tell you? The food is amazing. The recipes are pretty easy to follow and you end up, uh, you know, you follow step by step and you feel like you've been at cooking school for the last five years because the results are quite amazing. So I strongly urge you to get, give it a try. Plus, the sweet thing is that these guys do a special deal for History on Fire listeners. So you guys can check out this week's menu and get $60 off at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire. So even if you just decide to try it once, the way you find out whether you have the time to put into it, whether how easy it actually is, how tasty the food is, $60 off, you get to try about three meals or so, I believe. That's what $60 got you, so not a bad gig. Try it out. Robin Hood happens to be 
one of my all-time favorite quasi-historical figures. So I'm quite a bit excited to be sponsored by Robinhood.com. Uh, what these guys do, uh, they are an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, crypto, all of that commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, and it's a fairly non-intimidating way for newcomers to the stock market to invest for the first time. One of the big highlights of these guys, they have you know, other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade. Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees, trade stocks, and all of that. You keep your profits. So that's quite a plus. On top of it, Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. So sign up at onfire.robinhood.com. Again, that's onfire.robinhood.com. This episode of History on Fire is also brought to you by 4 a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. Some crazy statistics I was reading. Some 66% of guys experience hair loss by the age of 35. 40% of men by age 40 struggle with ED. These guys at 4 try to solve those problems in the easiest possible way. You don't need an in-person doctor visit for a prescription. Everything can be done online. They basically sell you the generic version, which is considerably cheaper but works the same than some of the name brand for the top hair loss and ED products. You can try their products for a month, starting today for just $5. So, while supplies last, only $5 for History on Fire listeners. This would cost Needless to say, it would cost a whole lot more if you were to go any other route. So go to 4 forward slash history and the number 5. Again, that's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com forward slash history and the number 5. Can't beat this deal, so check them out. This episode of History on Fire is also sponsored by Audible. If you have wondered whether you may want to try an Audible membership, this is a good time to do it since you have a special offer. For this particular episode, of course, the classic textbook for what we're going to be discussing in this episode is uh, The Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. And of course, Audible has that book in uh, audio format, so you can check it out there. There are also many, many, many other selections from motivational books, mystery, thrillers, histories, bestsellers, you name it. You can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. On top of it, you can uh, you get to have an audiobook library you keep forever, even if you cancel. So right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month, more than half off the regular price. So for more, you can go check it out at audible.com forward slash HOF. Again, that's audible.com forward slash HOF. Or you can text HOF to 500-500. Again, text HOF to 500-500. Two of my regular sponsors from day one have been Datsusara and Onnit. And they sponsored this episode as well. 
Uh, Omnit has 10,000 different products. I enjoy pretty much all of them, but today I wanna shine the spotlight on their fitness section. They have a whole bunch of offerings from kettlebells. They have some of the coolest kettlebells on the market, not only highly functional, but those things are a piece of artwork, I swear. I have quite a few sitting here in my living room. They are amazing to look at and great to work out with. They have all sorts of other things for less than conventional workouts from steel clubs, steel maces. They have instructional on how to use all this equipment. And this is barely scratching the surface of only the fitness section, which is only one of several, including apparel, foods, supplements that Onnit offers. The place where to check them out is onnit.com forward slash history. Again, that's onnit.com forward slash history, where you can receive a 10% discount. And my other sponsor that I mentioned is Datsusara. You can find these guys at the letter D, the letter S, the word gear.com, so dsgear.com. I use their products every single day. I carry all my money in a Datsusara wallet. I go to school with a computer bag, Datsusara. I go traveling with Datsusara backpacks. When I train in Jiu-Jitsu, I'm wearing a Datsusara gi. I use their stuff all the time. Why? A, because they are sweet people. B, because they all their materials overwhelmingly made with hemp, high quality, very durable. I like the look. I could go on, but just go check them out for yourself at dsgear.com. Before we get going, a couple of quick shout outs. One, I want to mention that in the spring of 2020, I'll be part of a tour going to Naples, Rome, and just about everything in between. It's going to be a tour hosted by Geek Nation Tours, and we'll be focusing on Gladiators. So if you guys have enjoyed the Gladiators episode that we have done a few months back, this is the tour for you. You get to travel through Italy, check out ancient gladiatorial sites, from marinas to ancient Roman ruins and the whole thing, and I'll be along for the ride. I'll include uh, a link in the episode notes, but again, these guys are geeknationtours.com. Also, if you guys drink coffee, please do me a favor and check out snowroast.com. Again, snowroast.com. The code HOF18 gets you a discount. Again, the code is HOF18. They have amazing coffee, they made, uh, they send me chocolates, they send me all sorts of amazing goodies. Check them out if you drink coffee. And also shout out to nevertapgear.com. These guys make knee braces for people working out to protect their joints. They're probably going to add also elbow braces, wrist braces and other stuff that's coming up. And they also have the amazing Tomoe Gods and Female Samurai Rush Guard designed by Savannah Riem. So check them out at nevertapgear.com. But now, without further ado, let's go see History on Fire. Since the negotiations are not to go on before the people, in order that we may not be able to speak straight on without interruption and deceive the ears of the multitude by seductive arguments which would pass without refutation, for we know that this is the meaning of our being brought before the few, what if you who sit there were to pursue a method more cautious still? Make no set speech yourselves, 
but take us up at whatever you do not like and settle that before going any farther. And first tell us if this proposition of ours suits you. The million commissioners answered. To the fairness of quietly instructing each other as you propose, there is nothing to object. But your military preparations are too far advanced to agree with what you say. As we see, you are come to be judges in your own cause, and that all we can reasonably expect from this negotiation is war, if we prove to have right on our side and refuse to submit, and in the contrary case, slavery. So today we're doing something a little bit different. This is an episode that's going to mix history, political philosophy, psychology, you name it. It's different because this is not just a standard narrative episode. I mean, there is a little bit of narrative, but mainly this is going to be a discussion regarding some of the ideas that the specific story that we'll start from bring up. So let's see exactly what we're talking about. By the way, before I forget to do such a thing, let me introduce the good and awesome Daryl Cooper sitting across from the table for me, who's going to jump in into this discussion with me. Daryl, thank you for being on History on Fire. Looking forward to it. Always a pleasure. Before I go further, Daryl, uh, I always made fun of to death for trying to pronounce the name of your podcast. Please do so yourself and spare me for our shame. It is the Martyr Maid Podcast. Thank you very much. If you guys haven't listened, you can feel very bad about yourself because every one of those episodes is just pure historical podcasting mastery at work. So having said that, let's jump into... Let's start from a little afar. Let's look at the historical context that's going to be at the heart of our story and that that's what we're going to use to spore forth our discussion. The historical context we're looking at is that of the Peloponnesian War, which I'm sure is the kind of stuff that you guys talk about nonstop at dinner parties with your friends or right after watching football. Who doesn't talk about the Peloponnesian War all the time, right? Peloponnesian War, in case you're not up to speed, was the big showdown between the two great power players in ancient Greece. That would be the Delian League, led by Athens, against the Peloponnesian League, led by Sparta. And the two sides were a war between 431 and 404 before Common Era. More or less at war. During that 27-year period, there were at least some truces here and there, but for the most part, this was a long, intense period of decades of war that will wreck ancient Greece as people knew it. At one point, the two sides had been allied in repelling a common threat that had come in the form of a Persian invasion. It wasn't that long before where, you know, if you think of Thermopylae, maybe your reference just goes as far as the movie 300, which by the way I'm not putting down, movie 300 is awesome for multiple ways, history is not one of its strong suits, but close enough. Those guys used to be allied, well not anymore by the time the Peloponnesian War kicks in. And the war will be an absolute catastrophe for the Greek world, you know, these 27 years of warfare will lead to destruction of most of the major cities in Greece, economic ruin in many parts of the country. It will contribute to spreading a deadly plague that looks straight out of The Walking Dead or something. 
Rape and pillage became the norm during this extended period of war, and some scholars refer to this as the end of the golden age of ancient Greek history. Now, if you are interested in this topic, you can probably do no better than reading the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. Okay, Daryl, why don't you tell the good folks a little about Thucydides? You know, he's such a famous figure in uh, history, in the very field of history, not just in history because of the role he played, but in the shaping of how we conceive and write history today. Please take it away. Sure. Thucydides was an Athenian general um, and historian. Uh, he was sympathetic to the Spartans, Spartans because he had spent some time with them, but he was Athenian, and he's writing the history of the Peloponnesian War. Um, one of the most famous historians of the ancient world. Uh, his work is a form of ancient history that we wouldn't recognize quite as history today, where he has no problem kind of filling in scenes with dialogue that he wouldn't necessarily have quoted specifically. Or, um, you know, with the Greeks in general, you kind of have this uh, idea where, uh, you know, he's not writing history so much as recording what's going on during his own period. And so it's history to us. But for him, he's almost a, a form of a, of a narrative journalist in a yeah. way, and recording things as they happen. Um, so again, some of the some of the dialogues uh, between parties um, are frequently things that you wouldn't expect to be direct quotations, but they are thought to carry the spirit of what was being conveyed between people. Yeah, it's kind of like in some way a mix between uh, history in the strict sense. You know, he does do a much better job than his predecessors in using more or less reliable sources, in trying to be accurate with his stuff, but at the same time there's a little bit of theater involved. He's also trying to entertain his audience to some degree by filling in the story even with parts that we may not have exactly. So it's a key transition from pure entertainment to entertaining quasi-history. So that's why many people consider him sort of the this father figure of modern Western history, the way it's done, even though, again, very far from modern standards, but key figure. Well, we won't try to tackle the entire Peloponnesian War. It's way too big of a topic, and, and that's not really what we're doing today. You know, what we'll do today is focus on one particular topic, a rather small one in the context of the Peloponnesian War, but use this topic within this larger story as a launching pad for further discussion. That's really a discussion about morality, philosophy, in some way what it means to be human. You know, we're going to go pretty heavy on some stuff where history and philosophy cross here. So let's start with the specific story. Okay, we mentioned the general background. Let's jump into the specific. The specific has to do with a relatively small player in the context of the war, the island of Melos, which was an island about 70 miles, which would be about a little over 100 kilometers from the Greek mainland. The inhabitants of the island of Melos belonged to the same ethnic group as the Spartans, but had chosen to remain neutral in the course of the war. You know, they've had a couple of minor clashes with Athens in the past, but for the most part, they just wanted to be left alone. They wanted to be on their island, fish their stuff, mind their business, and stay out of the war. The Athenians had raided their islands briefly in 426 before Common Era, but hadn't put the full blast they needed to set up an aerial siege, so they raided the countryside and left. By 424, Athens had come back demanding tribute 
from the island, but the locals had refused. And this is where in 416 before Common Era, where our story picks up, there was a truce between Athens and Sparta at this point, and it's in the context of this truce that the Athenians make their move. They send over 3,000 men to conquer the island. Some 38 ships carry all of them to Melos. And by the time the Athenians show up, their demands are the classic demands they are making of pretty much anybody within uh, that part of the world, which is join the Dillian League and pay tribute to us. We are now your new bosses, we'll take care of it, but you, you are now our subjects. So what follows is a dialogue that is a dramatized version of what the Millians and the Athenians may have said to each other during the negotiations. This is the dialogue written by Thucydides in the course of his history. Thucydides wasn't there, so clearly the dialogue didn't happen literally. But most people agree that it's thought to represent a more or less more or less faithful rendition of the arguments as they may have been advanced by the two sides. Daryl and I are going to take turns. I'm going to read the Athenian parts. He's going to read the Milian part of this dialogue. So we'll read you this entire portion of the dialogue written by Thucydides. And then we're going to jump into further discussion. So we're on the island of Milos after the Athenians have landed with their men. And the leaders of the expedition have been brought by the Milians into a sort of a private chamber so that they can negotiate their terms without the prying eyes of the general public, like in front of the assembly. Um, And so that's the scene as we're about to kick this off, and uh, the Athenians begin to speak. I'll be the Athenians today. Here we go. So we are not to speak before the people. No doubt in case the mass of the people should hear once and for all and without interruption an argument from us which is both persuasive and incontrovertible, and should so be led astray. This, we realize, is your motive in bringing us here to speak before the few. Now suppose that you, who sit here, should make assurance doubly sure. Suppose that you, too, should refrain from dealing with every point in detail in a set speech, and should instead interrupt us whenever we say something controversial, and deal with that before going on to the next point. Tell us first whether you approve of the suggestion of ours. And now I'm speaking on behalf of the delegation of the Melians. No one can object to each of us putting forward our own views in a calm atmosphere. That is perfectly reasonable. What is scarcely consistent with such a proposal is the present threat, indeed the certainty of your making war on us. We see that you have come prepared to judge the argument yourselves, and that the likely end of it all will either be war, if we prove that we are in the right, and so refuse to surrender, or else slavery. If you are going to spend the time enumerating your suspicions about the future, or if you have met here for any other reason except to look the facts in the face, and on the basis of these facts to consider how you can save your city from destruction, there's no point in our going on with this discussion. If, however, you will do as we suggest, then we will speak on. It is natural and understandable that people who are placed as we are should have recourse to all kinds of arguments and different points of view. However, you are right in saying that we met together here to discuss the safety of our own country, and if you will have it so, the discussion shall proceed along the lines that you have laid down. Then, 
we on our side will use no fine phrases saying, for example, that we have a right to our empire because we defeated the Persians, or that we have come against you now because of the injuries you have done us. A great mass of words that nobody would believe. And we ask you on your side not to imagine that you will influence us by saying that you, even though you are a colony of Sparta, have not joined Sparta in the war, or that you have never done us any harm. Instead, we recommend that you should try to get what it is possible for you to get, taking into consideration what we both really think. Since you know, as well as we do, that when these matters are discussed by practical people, the standard of justice depends on the equality of power to compel, and that in fact the strong do what they have the power to do, and the weak must accept what they have to accept. That right there, by the way, to me is the key line of this whole dialogue, and in some ways going to be the key line of this very episode, is the discussion of these themes. When the Athenians are articulating this vision, which they are stating, look at reality. The strong do what they want to do, and the weak need to learn to accept it. That's life. Any other way of looking at it, you're delusional, you're deluding yourself, and you're throwing smoke in our eyes. So let's stop playing games. This is where we're at. You know, it's a pretty bland, classic articulation of an extremely pragmatic, borderline cynical worldview that the Athenians are putting forward in front of the millions here. And the... uh you know the Athenians aren't even uh, you know, the, the the fact that they go out of their way to state that they're not pretending that the Melians have done them any wrong. That uh, you know they're showing up as the aggressor yep. to a neutral country and demanding that they no longer be neutral. That they pay tribute and ally with their side. Um, you know this is a naked act of aggression, and they go out of their way to point that out. You know, it just it, it it brings you to the point that after 15 years of war with the Spartans, the Athenians have sort of dropped that pretense. And what they're really saying here is not just that this is how we're approaching you. They're saying, let's be serious. This is reality all the time. And everything else that people dress it up with, all the, that's really a bad joke. <laughs> and it's, it's hilarious when you think, I mean, it's so blunt that it, we're so not used to this. Like, the Athenians are showing up, like, precisely what you said, right? This idea of, like, hey, what you're doing is a naked a- act of aggression. And the Athenians are like, yeah, what's your point? Deal with it. Exactly. Yeah. What are you trying? Whereas today, we're always trying, everybody's trying to argue that they are the good guys. So, hearing this argument made in such a, like, how do you even continue the dialogue? You know, the millions are trying to appeal to reason, to agreed upon principles, and the Athenians are like, look, there's only one agreed upon principle. The strong rule, the weak submit. Simple as that. Do we, do we need to continue the discussion? Well, apparently the answer is yes, because the Athenians go on. And it's funny, because even though the Athenians lay out their position very clearly, it doesn't sink in right away for the millions what they're dealing with here that yep. they're dealing with a monster you know that's not here to reason with you because they do in this next uh, in this next passage they're not begging for their lives they're trying to appeal to reason uh, they say then in our view since you force us to leave justice out of account and confine ourselves to self-interest in our view it is at any rate useful that you should not destroy a principle that is to the general good of all men namely that in the case of all who fall into danger, there should be such things as fair play and just dealing, and that such people should be allowed to use and to profit by arguments that fail short of a mathematical accuracy. 
And this is a principle which affects you as much as anybody, since your own fall would be visited by the most terrible vengeance and would be an example to the world. As for us, even assuming that our empire does come to an end, we are not really scared about what happens next. One is not so much frightened of being conquered by a power which rules over others, as Sparta does, not that we are concerned with Sparta now, as of what would happen if a ruling power is attacked and defeated by its own subjects. So far as this point is concerned, you can leave it to us to face the risks involved. What we shall do now is to show you that it is for the good of our own empire that we are here, and it is for the preservation of your city that we shall say what we are going to say. We don't want any trouble in bringing you into our empire, and we want you to be spared for the good both of yourselves and of ourselves. And how could it be just as good for us to be the slaves as for you to be the masters? You, by giving in, would save yourselves from disaster. We, by not destroying you, would be able to profit from you. So you would not agree to our being neutral, friends instead of enemies, but allies of neither side? No, because it is not so much your hostility that hurts us. It is rather the case that if we were on friendly terms with you, our subjects would regard it as a sign of weakness in us, whereas your hatred is evidence of our power. Is that your subject's idea of fair play, that no distinction should be made between people who are quite unconnected with you and people who are mostly your own colonists or else rebels whom you have conquered? So far as right and wrong are concerned, they think that there is no difference between the two, that those who still preserve their independence do so only because they are strong, and if we fail to attack them it is because we are afraid, so that by conquering you, we shall increase not only the size but the security of our empire. We rule the sea, and you are islanders, and weaker islanders too than the others. It is therefore particularly important that you should not escape. But do you think there is no security for you in what we suggest? For here again, since you will not let us mention justice, but tell us to give in to your interest, we too must tell you what our interests are, and if yours happen to coincide... We must try to persuade you of the fact. Is it not certain that you will make enemies of all the states who at present are neutral when they see what is happening here and naturally conclude that in the course of time you will attack them as well? Does not this mean that you are strengthening the enemies you already have and are forcing others to become your enemies even against their own intentions and their own inclinations? As a matter of fact, we are not so much frightened of states on the continent. They have their liberty and this means that it will be a long time before they begin to take precautions against us. We're more concerned about islanders like yourselves, who are still unsubdued, or subjects who have already become embittered by the constraint which our empire imposes on them. These are the people who are most likely to act in a reckless manner and to bring themselves, and us, into the most obvious danger. Then surely, if such hazards are taken by you to keep your empire and by your subjects to escape from it, we who are still free would show ourselves great cowards and weaklings if we failed to face everything that comes rather than to submit to slavery. No, not if you are sensible. This is no fair fight, with honor on one side and shame on the other. 
It is rather a question of saving your lives and not resisting those who are far too strong for you. Yet we know that in war, fortune sometimes makes the odds more level than could be expected from the difference in numbers of the two sides. And if we surrender, then all our hope is lost at once, whereas so long as we remain in action, there is still hope that we may yet stand upright. Hope. Hope that comfort are in danger. If one already has solid advantages to fall back upon, one can indulge in hope. It may do harm, but will not destroy one. But hope is by nature an expensive commodity, and those who are risking their all on one cast find out what it means only when they are already ruined. It never fails them in the period when such knowledge would enable them to take precautions. Do not let this happen to you. You are weak and whose fate depends on a single movement of the scale. And do not be like those people who, as so commonly happens, miss the chance of saving themselves in a human and practical way. And when every clear and distinct hope has left them in their adversity, turn to what is blind and vague, to prophecies and oracles and such things, which by encouraging hope lead men to ruin. It is difficult, and you may be sure that we know it, for us to oppose your power and fortune, unless the terms be equal. Nevertheless, we trust that the gods will give us fortune as good as yours, because we are standing for what is right against what is wrong. And as for what we lack in power, we trust that it will be made up for by our alliance with the Spartans, who are bound, if for no other reason than for honor's sake, and because we are their kinsmen to come to our help. Our confidence, therefore, is not so entirely irrational as you think. So far as the favor of the gods is concerned, we think we have as much right to that as you have. Our aims and actions are perfectly consistent with the beliefs men hold about the gods and with the principles which govern their own conduct. Our opinion of the gods and our knowledge of men lead us to conclude that it is a general and necessary law of nature to rule whatever one can. This is not a law that we made ourselves, nor we were the first to act upon it when it was made. We find it already in existence, and we shall leave it to exist forever among those who come after us. We're merely acting in accordance with it, and we know that you, or anybody else with the same power as ours, would be acting precisely the same way. And therefore, so far as the gods are concerned, we see no good reason why we should fear to be at a disadvantage. But with regard to your views about Sparta and your confidence that she, out of some sense of honor, will come to your aid, we must say that we congratulate you on your simplicity, but do not envy your folly. In matters that concern themselves or their own constitution, the Spartans are quite remarkably good. As for their relations with others, that is a long story, but it can be expressed shortly and clearly by saying that of all people we know, the Spartans are most conspicuous for believing that what they like doing is honorable and what suits their interest is just. And this kind of attitude is not going to be of much help to you in your absurd quest for safety at the moment. But this is the very point where we can feel most sure. Their own self-interest will make them refuse to betray their own colonists, the Melians, 
for that would mean losing the confidence of their friends among the Hellenes and doing good to their enemies. You seem to forget that if one follows one's self-interest, one wants to be safe, whereas the path of justice and honor involves one in danger. And where danger is concerned, the Spartans are not, as a rule, very venturesome. But we think that they would even endanger themselves for our sake and count the risk more worth taking than in the case of others because we are so close to the Peloponnese that they could operate more easily and because they can depend on us more than the others since we are of the same race and share the same feelings. Goodwill shown by the party that is asking for help doesn't mean security for the prospective ally. What is looked for is a positive preponderance of power in action. And the Spartans pay attention to this point even more than others do. Certainly they distrust their own native resources so much that when they attack a neighbor, they bring a great army of allies with them. It is hardly likely, therefore, that, while we are in control of the sea, they will cross over to an island. So now they go back and forth a little more. We're going to cut a couple of pieces because they don't really add anything to, you know, you're getting the vibe. But we go, we rush toward the the ending, the parting shots between the two sides. And I'll pick up with the Athenians saying, your chief points are concerned with what you hope may happen in the future. While your actual resources are too scanty to give you a chance of survival against the forces that are opposed to you at this moment. You will therefore be showing an extraordinary lack of common sense if after you have asked us to retire from this meeting, you still fail to reach a conclusion wiser than anything you have mentioned so far. Do not be led astray by a full sense of honor, a thing which often brings men to ruin when they are faced with an obvious danger that somehow affects their pride. For in many cases, men have still been able to see the dangers ahead of them, but this thing called dishonor, this word, by its own force of seduction has drawn them into a state where they have surrendered to an idea, while in fact they have fallen voluntarily into an irrevocable disaster. In dishonor, that is, all the more dishonorable because it has come to them from their own folly rather than from their misfortune. You, if you take the right view, will be careful to avoid this you will see that there's nothing disgraceful in giving way to the greatest city in Greece when she's offering you such reasonable terms. Alliance on a tribute-paying basis and liberty to enjoy your own property. And when you are allowed to choose between war and safety, you will not be so insensitively arrogant as to make their own choice. This is the safe rule, to stand up to one's equal, to behave with deference towards one's superiors and to treat one's inferiors with moderation. Think it over again. Then, when we have withdrawn from the meeting, and let this be a point that constantly recourse to your minds, that you are discussing the fate of your country, that you only have one country, and that its future for good or ill depends on this one single decision which you are going to make. At this point, the Athenians withdrew from the discussion, and the millions sit around to talk among themselves and figure out what to do. And then they provide their answer. Our decision, Athenians, is just the same as it was at first. 
We are not prepared to give up in a short moment the liberty which our city has enjoyed from its foundation for 700 years. We put our trust in the fortune that the gods will send and which has saved us up to now and in the help of men, that is, of the Spartans, and so we shall try to save ourselves. But we invite you to allow us to be friends of yours and enemies to neither side, to make a treaty which shall be agreeable to both you and us, and so to leave our country. Ah, sweet, naive millions. This is, it's all very... It touches my heart if I had one. And I'm speaking as an Athena right now, because that's kind of their vibe, right? It's like, come on, what are you talking about? Friendship and this and that. Is Let's be real. We have shown you reality and you just keep hiding behind all these silly ideals that have no bearing on reality. So what happens next? Well, things got ugly, very. Uh, the Athenians go with the Bugs Bunny version of so you know this means war. And so once negotiations break down, the, um, the Athenians begin to lay siege to the island. At some point during the course of the siege, they will, as often happen during sieges, they will re- uh, receive some help from some traitors within the main city, who I guess in exchange for something that the Athenians promised them, help them get access to the city. And so after a few months, after the Athenians have starved out the inhabitants of Melos, the, uh, the inhabitants have to surrender. You know, They have gone through hell, they have been starving, they have been eating the weirdest things ever to stay alive. The description that the city has provided is fairly awful to what's happening to the inhabitants of Milos. And this is still nothing compared to what happens when they open their gates. Because the Athenians will gather all of the men and kill them all, and then they will grab the women and kids and sell them all into slavery. After they have emptied the islands from any of the native population, they will send their own colonists to take over the now deserted island. So this one event, which is rather minor within the context of the Peloponnesian War, I mean, as far as military operations go, this is not one of the biggest events from the war. So we are doing something weird on focusing on something that, when talking about the Peloponnesian War, was not probably in the top 30 military engagements of the times. But we're doing it because of this dialogue, because of what the philosophical implications that this dialogue raise. And some of it is not just us today looking back on this dialogue and reflecting upon it. Even in the immediate aftermath, this generated a lot of discussion, even within Athens. Not all Athenians were quite on board with the decision that their commanders had made. For example, the historian Xenophon, by the way, remember him? He was the lead character in some of the very early History on Fire episodes specifically episodes 4 and 5 about the 10,000 expedition, well, Dexenophon, in 405 before Common Era, he wrote that as the Spartan army was closing in on Athens toward the end of the war, the citizens of Athens were really scared that the Spartans would treat them with the same cruelty that the Athenian army had shown in Melos. Here is a passage in which uh, Xenophon wrote, There was mourning and sorrow for those that were lost. But the lamentation for the dead was merging even deeper sorrow for themselves as they pictured the evils that they were about to suffer, the like of which they themselves had inflicted upon the men of Milos, who were colonists of the Spartans, 
when they master them by siege. So that's one example. There are others. Uh, one involves the most renowned authors of tra- tragedies in ancient Athens, which would be Euripides. You want to jump in on that yeah, one, Yeah, I can talk about Euripides. It's fascinating how you know there's nothing like... Uh, your own impending doom to make you reflect upon your own behavior toward others, you know? <laughs> right. Um, so the play we want to talk about by Euripides actually takes place before the moment that Xenophon's talking about when the Spartans are closing in near the end of the war. This is back about 10 years. The war's been going on for about 15, and they're just snarled up in this stalemate. The Athenians are too strong at sea for the Spartans to really interfere with them, and... The Spartans uh, are too powerful on land for the Athenians and their allies to be able to, to meet them in force and make any progress toward their homeland. And so they're just sort of locked in, and there's there's nowhere really to go with it. You get to 415 B.C., the winter of 416 turning into 415 is when the uh, Melian Dialogue we just read took place, when the massacre took place. And it also is happening at the same time that the Athenians are making a decision that historians still look back on today as something that is almost just a, a mad, insane foreign policy decision on their behalf. Um, and so in this same uh, winter, 415, 416 turning into 415, uh, uh, as the Melian Massacre, the Athenians make this insane decision that people uh, talk about a lot today to decide to uh, mount a massive invasion of the island of Sicily, specifically to go after the city-state of Syracuse. Um, Historians still talk about this today because it, it, it's something that almost seems like a, an act out of frustration, to vent rage, that they can't go and vent on their enemies, the Spartans. Um, and it puts something like the Melian Massacre in a little bit different context, too. You know, that maybe it was a little bit less than just a realpolitik, sort of ruthless foreign policy decision that the Athenians uh, like to present it as in the dialogue we just read. You know, as a matter of just pure interests, and they're being cold and calculating about it. When you look at their other decisions at the time, specifically to go after Syracuse and Sicily, uh, who were unconnected to the war and who you couldn't imagine would provide any real benefit to them if they if they were to prevail, uh, but had massive risks and it took a lot of resources. You look at the decisions they're making, and and you think that maybe there's more to it than just realpolitik. That maybe there's something something deeper that they they need to vent on somebody and they're making irrational decisions even though they like to talk about it as if they're you know being cold and calculating and so um i think that uh before we talk directly about euripides um it it may be interesting to kind of talk about the culture of athens that opens up the space for um this sort of self-criticism that you don't you wouldn't necessarily expect to see from the spartans for example at least as we know them and the way they've come down to us in history um okay rabbit hole here we go let's dive into this one then we'll get back to euripides and then we'll go but this i dig it i'm ready for it so this is one of the things i found the most interesting about because the question is like you mentioned the ambivalence here that even at the time as these generals uh, of this army this athenian delegation is making these cold-blooded arguments that even at the moment uh there was ambivalence within athens not just about whether this was a safe thing to do and you know, looking at the arguments of the Melians, is this going to come back on us? But really reflecting on themselves, is this right? Um, you know, the, the Athenians, we've all read their philosophy, we've read a lot of stuff. These are humane people if, in the context of the ancient world, and they're perfectly capable of understanding the arguments that the Melians are putting forth. Um, you, the stuff that we read by them is all about justice and right and love and all these things. These are, these are sophisticated people. And so 
you do have this sort of self-criticism going on, and it comes from uh, Athenian culture that, that, that opens up a place for it. So, you know, you have things like near the end of the brutal war, at the time that Xenophon was speaking of, um, Aristophanes, the famous comic playwright, he has a play, The Lysistrata, and it ends with um, the chorus in the, in the Greek play uh, singing a song that's praising both the Spartans and the Athenians. Um, that's something that may sound, you know, in our age today in the United States where, you know, we often will have movies shortly after, even during a war, where we present a sympathetic side of the enemy, uh, which is something maybe convenient to do when we're not really afraid of Iraqis. We're not really afraid of Afghanis, you know, the Taliban. Um, so we maybe have the luxury of doing that. These people were locked into an existential war with the Spartans, and yet here they are on, like, the... You know, this was not something happening in a back alley theater. This was a public festival, the biggest thing of the year. And Aristophanes, a famous playwright, has his chorus praising the Spartans. And you just have to think of something like, imagine France, 1917, the last year of a horrible war with Germany. A French playwright, uh, you know, in a major, major public production, having his characters praise the Germans' courage and bravery and so forth alongside the French. They probably would have been prosecuted for treason. No argument. And what makes this insane, as you, exactly what you're saying, is the fact that probably everyone in the audience had some family members who died in uh, the yeah. war. This is not, again, some distant thing. This is everybody's affected by this stuff. And it's so. a two-generation war. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing. You have a lot of these wars throughout history that are 30-year wars. You have this one. Yeah. You got the European 30 years war, the wars of religion. And then if you kind of look at... The German wars of the 20th century, World War One and Two, as kind of one thing, you know, you have these things come up, and really it takes wiping out, or uh, the the Roman wars against Hannibal as well, where it really takes wiping out two generations of men for people to come to their senses and yep. realize that this is not what they want to do. So that's the context, you know, it's everybody is who's watching it. That's right, had lost somebody, and it was something very, or had been injured who had been in mm-hmm. war, and like, you know, they were that close to it, and so. You know, this comes out of an Athenian culture that we're all very fam- familiar with and that we do revere for, for good reason today. You go back to uh, near the beginning of the war in 426 BC, which was the year that the Athenians first went after Milos, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and Aristophanes writes uh, another play, a famous play called uh, The Babylonians. And in this, you have this famous playwright who is essentially condemning and attacking the Athenians, his own people, he's from Athens, attacking Athens' treatment of its own allies, where he presents it in comparison to uh, the treatment of the most hated you know, uh, empire in the world, the Persians, of their leader Darius, his treatment of the Babylonians. And he actually pictures the Athenian city-state allies uh, who the Athenians, by the time you get to the Melian dialogue, are referring to not as their allies, but as their subjects. Um, he pictures them as slaves treading a mill on behalf of the Athenians. And so, you know, this is, this is a really cutting, cutting play that he puts out there. Where, you know, in addition to that, um, I mean, you have to really try to understand how, how much they hated and feared the Persians and what an event this was in in uh, Greek civil life at the time. So to compare your own leader's treatment of your allies to the Persians, I mean, it's it's like calling somebody a Nazi today. Uh-huh. That's really what it's like. Yep. Um, 
And so in, in, in addition, he goes after the leader of Athens at the time, the demagogue Cleon, who had advocated a massacre in Italy in the year before. But here's the interesting, here's one of the interesting parts is he goes after all of these things, breaking all these taboos and, uh, you know, these sacred cows at a time when they're locked into a real war. So it's not like during a nice peacetime where he gets this out. And he goes after the leader. The leader tries to prosecute him for treason. But he fails, mm-hmm. and he's you know he's not successful in prosecuting him. That tells you something about what you know the culture of Athens that people were like, no, 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 no. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Is the fact that there was no single Athens that way. There were mo- multiple people fighting for the soul of what it meant to be Athenian. You know, the people who are arguing for the Milian dialogue are clearly not the same people as Xenophonos or Euripides or some of. Aristophanes or some of these guys, you know, the, there are people who are arguing more in line with the with the type of ideas that were put forth by the millions who are arguing for the necessity of having some basic principles that everybody abide to. And there's another view, the one that the Athenians are presenting the dialogue that is just naked power. Mm-hmm. End of story. And in that sense, it's a struggle. You know, the naked power is there. It's part of what makes the Athenians, uh, the Athenian Empire, the Athenian Empire. But at the same time, it's not there to the point that it can squash dissent, because as you just brought up, there is a lot of internal criticism of what's going on. Yeah, and that it was, and that, and that the uh, the permission to internally criticize was a value that Athenians in general had internalized. Mm-hmm. So that even the generals who were making that rule, many of them, um, maybe they didn't agree with or like the dissent. But very few of them would have wanted to change their society in such a way where it was no longer possible or, or allowable. Um, you know, I think when it's the essence of an open society where it is like multiple people partaking and going into this, if we think of something like um, Nazi Germany, totalitarian society, of course, there were people within it who may or may not have agreed with what was going on. But that's not the way we think of it because it was a totalitarian society. Mm-hmm. And we say, you know, the Nazis did the following, wanted the following, intended the following, and that's what matters in totalitarian society. Yep. In an open society where everybody's at the table, or, you know, depending on what Mm -hmm. age you're talking about, the free males or whatever at the table, it is a more dynamic process, you know, and there's a certain amount of flexibility and impact, shock that can, you know, that can kind of go through there. So um, I'll go one more time with Aristophanes before we go into uh, uh, Euripides. Um, You can kind of imagine... Uh, somebody like Aristophanes getting away with this because he was a comic poet. So you think of it today as like t- today's political cartoons. We let them get away with a lot that we wouldn't allow necessarily somebody on the news to say without you know getting in trouble. And so you can kind of imagine Aristophanes in that light, and maybe it makes it a little bit more understandable for us. Um, in 424, he goes after Cleon, the, the demagogue Cleon, again in his play Nights. Um, but he uh, was awarded first prize. You know, these were contests back then um, and for the plays. And he was awarded first prize despite criticizing the leader again and all of these things in the midst of the war. But it wasn't because Cleon's star had faded and now he couldn't push back. I mean, Cleon was elected general the next year, very, very high position in Athens. And so, you know, this is what this is. This is kind of what you've got in Athens as you're leading up into this period, um, 415 B.C. with Milos and everything. 415 in the spring, Euripides, who's not a comic poet, he's a tragedian, uh, presents the play of the Trojan Women. And now, again, this is coming in at a time where they had just massacred uh, the Melians the winter, a few months before. 
they had just made the decision, this catastrophic, insane, paranoid decision to go invade Sicily and try to go after Syracuse, uh, something that would turn out to be a complete and total catastrophe that would, uh, who knows if they ever had a chance in the war to begin with, but they certainly didn't have a chance after they went and got their rear ends kicked in Sicily for no reason. Mm -hmm. So they're in the midst of this kind of madness. And uh, Euripides comes out with this play, The Trojan Women, which is sort of a postmodern play in a lot of ways. And a lot of people uh, don't quite think of it this way. But if you, if you think of postmodernism in terms of uh, the way um, like Michel Foucault described his work as an archaeology of the shadows, where there are uh, the official histories and there are all of the you know, in their case, the official history of the Trojan War was the Iliad. And you read through it, and you've got Hector, and you've got Achilles, and you've got Agamemnon, and all these great heroes, and that's the how the story is driven. But all through that, there are people that aren't written about or are very faintly detectable, like kind of in the shadows of the dialogue. You've got the fact that there are children everywhere in the city. They're not mentioned really at all. You've got the fact that there are women running around. Half the population, presumably, is female. And... Uh, you have to kind of detect them in the shadows of the narrative. And that's mm-hmm. what Euripides is doing here. He goes and writes about the women of Troy who would have been absolute victims of the Trojan War. Um, you know, you've got the famous Trojan War in the Iliad, and now uh, the men are having out all their battles and duels over honor and this and that. But in the background, you've got these women who are in Troy just waiting to see what happens. Um, and then when the sack of the city finally happens, what does happen to him? And that's a lot of what the play's about. And, you know, you go through uh, and, and read The Trojan Women, and it reads less like a, an, a drama with an arc than it does almost like a horror movie. Um, it's just a recitation of horrors of, you know, one woman is raped, uh, another is sacrificed by having her throat slit, sacrificed to Achilles. Um, you know, many, many, many of them, as was pretty common back then, were handed out as sex slaves. But to the men who had killed their husbands, if you could imagine that, um, one woman sees her baby son being tossed from the walls of the city and killed. Um, people, all the other women are taken into slavery. And, and you go through it, and it's it's like uh, reading uh, the script of a horror movie. It's just you're moving from one atrocity to another as you're going through this. And so Euripides comes out with this play just a, you know, a few months after the massacre and enslavement of uh, uh, the Melians, and the whole play is full of allusions to what had just happened a few months before with the Melians. It's a historical play set in a historical context, but uh, it's very, very obvious to everybody that you know this is not just a sort of artistic tragedy. This is social commentary on the state of Athens and what they had become and what they had just done to another group of people. Um, but even at a time that was so tense and, and attacking a subject that you have to imagine was just unbelievably controversial. Mm-hmm. I mean, just this had just happened a few months yep. before. He was not censored for this. He was awarded a prize, and it won him higher fame. And this is something that was permitted. You know, he wasn't prosecuted. He, he was rewarded for this. And so there's this un- unbelievable, almost just incredible contradiction in Athens where uh, they are behaving like madmen abroad in their foreign policy outside their walls but within the walls of the polis there's a remarkable level of sanity and and commitment to certain principles Mm -hmm. that they're allowing these things to go on and so um you know i would imagine that like to an outsider uh you know the other city states looking on 
may have looked at Athens and seen, uh, you know, on one hand, the way they're behaving toward people like the Melians. On the other hand, you know, looking over the walls at their festivals and seeing them putting on plays of that, that are sort of demonstrating compassion for the women of Troy and sort of these self-criticism sessions. And they might think these hypocrites, you know, they're, 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 they're sort of giving themselves this comfortable illusion that they're, you know, that they're thoughtful and compassionate people who can deal with these things, but look at the way they're actually behaving. But, you know, I always tend to think of it as like, it's, it's, it's hypocrisy is one way to look at it. If you look at the society as a whole, but this is what ambivalent moral struggle looks like. You know, they are struggling their way through this. And um, that's one of the things I find the most interesting about it, because we don't get to see it in closed societies. It's only in a society like Athens that we get to see that play out. And so uh, when you asked me to come uh, have a chat with you about this, I went through and I read the Melian Dialogue again, started reading about you know, some of the cultural context that we're talking about now. And then I went back and reread the Trojan women and I had read it a long time ago, but I would completely forgotten just how savage it really was and how modern it was in a lot of ways, something we would recognize. Um, but then, you know, uh, I hadn't read the Iliad in a while, so I went back and reread the Iliad. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to laugh. This sounds so much like you. Yeah. This is like the Daryl and Dan Carlin curse, yeah. which is, I'm going to pick on a topic, so I'm going to read everything that is on that topic. <laughs> but then this topic is also connected to this other topic. Yeah, that's so what always happens. Which is why you guys re- release two episodes a year, because it's like, I need to read about 45 different books to even begin having a conversation on this, but... Yeah. Well, it was really enjoyable, though, because, um, you know, I read the Iliad probably every couple of years, but it has been a little while. And um, there was a lot about it that I recognize now that I didn't really recognize before. Um, you know, you tend when you're a little younger to read it and you get the action and you get the violence. And that's one thing. It was it was far more violent than I kind of remember. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is unbelievably violent. I mean, you've got. You know, people being stabbed through the eye socket with a spear and the spear coming out the back of the head. And, and, you know, Homer quotes with the eyeball still stuck on the end like a poppy, you know, and it's just unbelievably brutal stuff. And he almost just revels in it in a way. So I would love a version of a cinematographic version of the Iliad done by Quentin Tarantino. I think you'd have to have somebody like that do it. Yeah, you really would. In classic Kill Bill style, right? (laughs) All the blood. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, you said you wanted a rabbit hole. You want, you want a rabbit hole? Because I, I got... Let's go. I, I, I got to talk about the Iliad a little bit. This, Before it, we get into yeah. the discussion of the theme of the Milian dialogue, let's have an yeah. Iliad rabbit this hole. Will, this will be good context for some of the stuff we're going to be yeah. talking about. Okay, so let's talk about the Iliad for a second. Um, I guess... <laughs> I'm sorry. I like to highlight the irony here. Let's talk about the Iliad for oh, a second. Just for a second, you know. Let's, let's see about <laughs> Daryl's definition of a second. Oh, yeah. It's, it's something I hear a lot, actually. So um, for everybody out there who's not uh, familiar with the story of the Iliad or, you know, there are certain things about it that pe- a lot of people actually think that's more from pop culture, uh, Achilles heel and all that. But we'll give a quick uh, it's kind of mm-hmm. summary of the story. It's, it's a remarkably simple story for all the play that it gets in our culture and, and for the overall length of the poem. So, so when the Iliad starts, it's in the ninth year of a war between the Achaeans, who are coming from what we call Greece today, and the Trojans. Uh, the son of the king of the Trojans has gone over to Greece ten years before, nine years before the story starts, and uh, you can call it an abduction, or maybe they fell in love, but one way or another, he comes away with the ruler of Sparta's wife and takes her back to Troy. Oops, I yeah. make the sound effects. Yeah, and given everything that happens, I mean, war's a tragedy and everything, but 
among reasons to go to war. That's not a bad one. No, I like That's that. That's not a bad That's one. That's my, my, absolutely <laughs> right? my favorite. A because prince, of an incredibly yeah. hot woman that you're in love with and your wife gets to... Yeah. Yeah. And, like, you know, uh, the, uh, the prince of another state comes into your own house on goodwill, eats your food, and leaves with your wife. That's a good reason to throw down. War. Yeah. And so that's what happens. Menelaus, the ruler of Sparta, and uh, his brother, Agamemnon, who's sort of the overall war leader of the Greeks at the time of the Achaeans, um, they mount up for war. They mount a huge expedition. They head over there. And when the Iliad picks up, it's already in the ninth year of this war. They've been laying siege away from home over there for nine years. And so Achilles, a lot of people have heard of him, Achilles' heel and all that. Brad Pitt plays him in the movie. Um Achilles is the great warrior of the Achaeans. They have a whole bunch of great heroes and warriors, Odysseus and Ajax and all these, but Achilles is the man. Like He's just the undefeatable, half-immortal warrior of, of their side. And so he ends up getting into an argument and a fight with Agamemnon, the, the, the leader of the Greeks, because Agamemnon claims one of Achilles' war prizes, a girl named Briseis. So Achilles pulls out of the conflict. He takes all of his men because he's sort of a, you know, he's like a, a lord, I guess you would say, um, of his, in, in his own right. So he and his men withdraw from the battle, and he makes an appeal to his mother, the goddess Thetis, um, to essentially turn things against the Greeks, to punish them for what's been done to him. And it's something very interesting because, and, and this is kind of part of where we're going to go, or where I'm going to go, is... Um, his mother, the goddess uh, Thetis, was one of the things, among others, that she was the goddess of was the political legitimacy. And so he appeals to the goddess of political legitimacy saying, hey, you know, back in the ancient world in these barbarian cultures, um, how the leader distributed plunder taken from battle, that was a huge, huge deal. Things, there, there were rules and customs that were very firm. And so when Agamemnon comes and takes something that is rightfully rightfully belongs to Achilles that's an illegitimate act by the leader and that is how in the old day in these days uh, a ruler would be judged illegitimate so he he appeals to his mother the goddess of political legitimacy to turn things against them and she does and the Greeks go in and they just get shellacked by the Trojans and so this happens and uh, Agamemnon kind of sees he needs Achilles you know he needs this guy in the war so he sends some uh ambassadors to Achilles with gifts and other things to try to get him to just give up his, you know, his his temper tantrum that he's throwing and come on back into the fight, but Achilles refuses. And so the Greeks go back in and they just get smashed up by the Trojans again. And this time a bunch of Achilles' friends, the other heroes whose names we know, a lot of them, they come back wounded and they're really taking a beating at this point. And so Achilles is watching this and he says, "All right, uh, you know, maybe I, I got to do a little something here. This may be hurting his pride or something. And so he sends his best friend, uh, Patroclus. And, you know, this is, these are Greek times. And so friendship, you know, meant, there are probably some other things going on there, too. These two were very close. Let's put it that way. Um, and he they sends Broadway musicals together. There you go. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. They love show tunes. Um, and so he sends his best friend Patroclus with his own armor, with Achilles' own armor, and sends him into battle. Patroclus is a great warrior, so he says, go help out, do your thing. I'm not ready to participate yet. And he goes in, and the, and the Greeks get beat again, and Patroclus is killed by the great hero on the Trojan side, Hector, the oldest son of Priam the king. And Hector kills Patroclus, thinking he's Achilles, and takes Achilles' armor after that's over. So at this point... Achilles just runs completely off the rails. Um, and he actually, 
Do you have the quote from your book? I, I, I really like it, actually. You can talk about this part. Yeah, might as well. There's a, a very short part in the book that I wrote called Not Afraid. Thank you, Eminem, for the title. No, I don't think I stole it from him, but it definitely is the same as his song. There's a quote when I discuss uh, briefly the Iliad and Achilles. I'm going to mention it right now. Uh, here it goes. It says, Think Achilles from the Iliads after the Trojans have the very bad idea of killing his best friend. The news of his death projects Achilles into a state of near madness. By the time he dons his armor and gathers his weapons, he's no longer Achilles. Grief has burned away his identity and his humanity. He's now the incarnation of a demon whose only reason to exist is revenge. Losing everything he loved has given him powers to do anything. Anything, that is, except what he wants most of all the ability to bring his friend back. And so the only thing left for him to do, the only thing that will silence temporarily the hellish pain that's ripping him apart, is to gorge into an orgy of blood. When he enters battle, no one will be able to touch him. No one will be able to stop him. He's a force of nature bent on destruction. A monster, escaped from the nightmares of the god of war. Before meeting their gory deaths, the Trojans will only have time to curse themselves for the horror that they have unleashed. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> that's good stuff from a good book. So that's a, it's just a great way to put it. Achilles at this point just goes completely berserk, like in the traditional barbarian meaning of the term. I mean, he goes completely berserk. And uh, when, I, when I say it, it's not just him going in and being unstoppable in battle. He goes in and calls out Hector, fights Hector, and... Um, uh, Kills him, uh, you know, in combat. And before they uh, engaged in combat, Hector, who's a civilized man still, he hasn't degenerated into this total barbarian rage that Achilles had. He makes an appeal to Achilles beforehand. He says, look, this is fine. We're going to fight. This is war. Let's just make an agreement that whoever loses will return the body of that person to their people for proper rights and burial and so forth. And Achilles just has this just brutal line you know it's kind of famous he says that there are no trustworthy oaths between lions and men you know he's calling himself the the predator here he's here as a predator to take you out this is not these are not two civilized men fighting each other and we're going to kind of have a little battle here like i'm here to assault and destroy you and um you know if you think you get to that point where he's comparing himself with an animal that you can't go beneath that then you take the lines that uh you know achilles says next and i wrote these ones down because they're so brutal He says, no more entreating of me, you dog, by knees or parents. I wish only that my spirit and fury drive me to hack your meat away from your bones and eat it raw for the things that you have done to me. I mean, you're talking about, you know, this this backwards movement into just bloodlust. And now he's talking about cannibalism. I mean, he just he wants like that he needs to eat his raw meat to satisfy the rage that, that he feels right now you know and of course we know that even that's not going to do the trick i'm going to start using this line in my personal interactions yeah. all the time yeah. i think it applies to plenty <laughs> yeah excuse me sir you didn't bring enough change i will Rawr. hack your meat away from your bones and eat it raw young lady <laughs> and uh you know you get to that point where that's your mentality and you say where do you where do you go from a place like that and you find out shortly after right it's like he kills hector in their fight he pierces his heels with uh you know with a, with a cord and drags him around the city walls in front of his 
family in front of his father, um, m- you know, mocking him. And this is this. There's, there's no honor in this. This is not a fight between two armed. He's just degrading the corpse, and it's something that, it, you know, to, to, to us today, that's just a horrific act. But we maybe are a bit detached from it. You have to understand the importance that these people, you know, in the Homeric poems, uh, definitely, it's a huge theme. Uh, you know, Homer. Homer goes. He just talks about all these brutal killings we talked about, and Homer does not like recoil from any of that. He almost revels in some of this brutality. It's just it's war, it's killing. There's a heroism to it, mutual combat. But one of the things that he really does get uh, morally horrified and outraged by, or it's a moral concern, you can say, is the proper burial of somebody who was killed. The idea, and you can really feel the disgust and horror in Homer when he talks about bodies left out for the dogs and vultures to pick away at, that that's something that nobody should have to suffer because that's you're no longer talking about war. You're no longer talking about anything civilized. You're just talking about savagery at mm-hmm. that point when you get to the point that bodies are left out for animals to eat. And so when he does this to Hector, defiling his body and then taking him back that night and sitting his, his mutilated body up to watch as they sacrifice a bunch of animals and then sacrifice humans even, which at the time that this would have been taking place, um, the sacrifice of humans was, it happened very, very occasionally, but it was extremely rare. Like they had, the Mycenaeans had pretty much left human sacrifice behind at this point. And so he's, again, he's reverting back to this older barbarous practice of human sacrifice. And that's kind of the state he's in. And, uh, well, yeah. So that's basically uh, the the leaving a, leaving aside the climax. That uh, brings us up to like the, the first and second act finished up, right? And I'll get to the third act in just a second. Um, kind of the third uh, dramatic climax. Uh, but the first two. Uh, but, but I want to address another point first. I said that one of the main moral concerns is uh, the proper burial rites of a hero. That that's something that nobody should have to suffer. You know, having their body left out. But one of the other ones is, and this is I would say. Probably the main moral question in uh, in the Iliad is the question of uh, to accept or not accept some form of ransom or compensation um, or gift or something to put you off your maybe right to revenge, but certainly your desire for like an aggressive satisfaction. So somebody kills your brother or one of the people, you know, something is taken from you and you can let go of that because you're given you know, some form of ransom for that or, or something like that. And to us, again, these are something that goes way, way back thousands of years to how societies were coming out of barbarism into civilization. But this is a primary concern for these people. Um, and so, I mean, you want to cut at any point? I can keep going a little bit more, but... No, no, okay, it yeah. works. So, I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm all for the ride into so, the Iliad rabbit hole. So this is where I, I thought it got really interesting. This is the part that I noticed in the Iliad. I'd never noticed before, in, at least to this extent. So there are three kind of dramatic climaxes um, in, the, in, you know, in the tale. And uh, the first one, uh, and all of them have to do with that question of whether or not compensation is going to be accepted by somebody who feels they've been wronged. Mm-hmm. Or if they're going to say, I don't want your compensation, I'm going to take care of this myself. I'm yep. going to get my satisfaction one way or the other. Uh, the first time is when Agamemnon, the leader of the Achaeans, um, he takes prisoner... Uh, a, a young girl whose father was a priest of Apollo, 
And that priest comes and says, look, let me ransom my daughter back. This was a common practice back then. Let me pay you, give you whatever you want, everything I have, just give me my daughter back. And all of his men, all of Agamemnon's men, are begging him, give her back, give her back. This is a priest of Apollo. We don't need the gods turning on us. You know, this is a this is a righteous request that he's making in accordance with custom and law. Give her back. But he won't do it. He's too arrogant. He refuses. And that refusal leads directly to his conflict with Achilles and to Achilles pulling out and then to the disaster for the Greeks. Uh, the second dramatic climax something similar. After the Greeks take a few beatings from the Trojans, Agamemnon sends that delegation to Achilles to get him to come back to the war, offers him compensation to put everything aside, and Achilles is just too angry. He refuses. And that refusal leads directly to a bunch of his friends getting hurt and killed, including his best friend, Patroclus, who Mm -hmm. gets killed. And so his refusal there, again, just leads to catastrophe for everybody involved. And Finally, you get to the third one. This is the scene we haven't talked about yet. And it's, it's just an unbelievably moving scene if you really try to put yourself in this place. It's after Hector's been killed and his body has been defiled and mutilated and humiliated and it's still sitting out, hasn't been buried or anything yet. It's just sitting out being defiled by dogs in the, uh, in the Achaeans' camp. And still, Achilles... His, his anger is not assuaged. He's killed the guy that's done this to his friend, and still he's as crazy as ever. Like, he's just, nothing is bringing him back from this. Well, the king of the Trojans, Priam, he loads up into a big cart full of treasures and gifts and stuff and gets only a driver and rides across the war plain out to the Achaeans' camp in secret and finds his way to Achilles' tent. And he goes in there and he begs Achilles, the man who has killed his sons, and brought ruin and sorrow to his city. And he goes in and he kisses Achilles' hands and gets on his knees and begs him for his son's body back so that he can take him back and give him proper burial. And um, he offers him ransom for the body. And for the only time in the entire poem, Achilles, for the only time for anybody, not just Achilles, but in this case, it's Achilles, uh, he is moved by this. He's, you know, this this situation. He thinks back about his own father and how he's been at war all these years while his father's getting old without him, and he mourns the fact that he's brought so much sorrow to the city. And he's finally moved by compassion uh, to give back the body and accept the compensation. And um, you know, this is something that I find that that theme of whether or not to accept a replacement satisfaction for something that, you know, maybe it's a righteous, maybe it is righteous anger. They killed your friend. It is righteous anger. But what you find is that all the killing isn't making it any better. But through an act of will and compassion by choosing to accept compensation Mm -hmm. and put it aside, that's a civilized act. You know, that's something where he's making a decision to submit to a social institution, which is what ransom is, and, you know, sort of give up his own, his own impulses uh, in order to submit to that institution. Which I guess is interesting because now that I remember, that's exactly how you conclude your series on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's how after six yeah. episodes and 30 yeah. hours or however much it is, that's exactly where you go, where with that discussion goes into precisely this topic. Which, by the way, I hadn't thought about that. I didn't either when yeah. you brought it up the first time before we started recording. And now as you are saying, I'm like, hey, hey, I heard that before. And that's like the end of your series, which... If you guys haven't checked it out, talk about the series that hit an emotional chord when you get to the end of it all after 30 hours and Daryl gets into this story about the 
people accepting to forgive what by all human instincts seem completely unforgivable, there's some serious emotional core that gets stuck there. That's really powerful landing. Um, and so I'll wrap this up real quick, uh, uh, this little summary. Um, after Achilles decides to go back into battle, he doesn't have his armor anymore because he had given his armor to his friend and it was taken from him when he was killed. And so he goes, uh, the god Hephaestus makes him a new set of armor. And there's a famous part, the, the shield, that's described in great detail in, in Homer. Um, the shield of Achilles is, uh, I think there's books named that. Um, and it's very interesting because you would think that the shield of Achilles would have all these scenes of battle and war and hunting and something like that, but it's not what it is. The shield of Achilles depicts a bunch of scenes from daily life, you know, um, just daily civilized life. And it starts off and it depicts a marriage and the festival afterwards. Um, you know, then it shows two men arguing over a blood price over because of somebody, one of their friends or relatives has been killed and the two men are arguing over what the compensation should be. And then finally, unable to come to an agreement, the two men decide to submit their claims to a court for arbitration. And then that's how they resolve their issue. And so when you have that theme, these themes of whether or not to just, you know, the guy who is depicted arguing over the blood price, not only would he probably like to just stab the man Mm -hmm. who did it, but maybe morally he's justified in doing that. Like Mm -hmm. his outrage is not immoral, right? But you have to make a conscious decision that if you're going to be, if you're going to live in civilization, then there are so, there have to be there has to be structure and there have to be rules. If everybody gives vent to their impulses, whether sexual or aggressive, whatever, all the time, well, that's what animals do. That's what barbarians do. And you know, so you you sort of crimp and crop your own impulses and submit them to the structure of these institutions. And that's what Achilles had completely given up. Where he's just completely given into that barbarian rage, and the thing that finally uh, brings him back from that abyss is not, uh, you know, sort of uh, it just appeals to his humanity. It's not um, killing all the people that he can that have actually done this to him. It's this institution of ransom that people had come up with as a way to cut these cycles of violence off. Uh, I just I, I thought that was very interesting. It absolutely is, and I think is that's where are we getting out of the Iliad the rabbit hole? Or well, yeah, that, was, that's enough of the summary. Yeah, it'll it'll kind of come tie, up as we go on. Yeah, because tying it to the million thing, because it's like how does it tie? Well, one of the issues is there similarity there between what you're stating as the rules of civilized society and the price, which is what the millions are arguing for. Yep. It's like hey, there are certain principles that are not to be violated, and the other side of it, which is is slightly different in the Iliad version and in what the Athenians are arguing. In the Iliad version, it's just purely emotional and raw. Uh, in the Athenian version, is very cold and cynical. It's like, look, big fish eat small fish. It's not, as the Godfather would say, it's it's not personal. It's just business. You know, it's there's this attitude of this is the way it is. You know, in a, whereas the Achilles approach is clearly very deeply emotional yeah. and from. But the end result is still the same in the sense that there is a tension between this pure barbarism of just the stripping all humanity, morality, anything else, just big fish eat small fish, that's how the universe works, and anything beyond that is just delusion, which is what the Athenians are arguing in the dialogue, 
versus the idea of hey let's live by some laws that are a little beyond the big fish eat small fish let's try something else which in some ways at the very heart of what we're going to be discussing yeah. here is that tension because do you mind if i jump into a dan carlin reference please do this? yeah please do there's an extremely interesting dan carlin episode from hardcore history where I don't believe this is not one of the ones that are still available for free. I think this is just available on his website. You can buy the MP3 from him. It's a great story. It's called Thor's Angels. And it's a six-hour marathon in classic Dan Carlin style where he examines the way in which what the Romans would refer to as the barbarians, primarily Germanic tribes, but not only, are eventually bring down, help bring down the Western Roman Empire and then are meet Christianity. And the effect that the encounter between the traditions of the Germanic tribes as they encounter Christianity will have on the entirety of Western civilization. And part of it, what happens here is that this will affect, I mean, down to this day, down to modern policy in all of the Western world, in some way go back to this theme of this clash between we worship Odin and we are straight up good old-fashioned barbarians who kill our enemies and drink wine from their skulls versus, hey, no, but we also became good Christians and we're kind of not supposed to do that. We still want to and we still like to, but no, we can't because we have this other morality going on. So which kind of goes back to the Achilles uh, idea, to the Athenians versus uh, island of Milos, is this notion of the encounter between barbarian ethics, if we can define them in this way, and the more civilized Christian ones. By the way, I'm using the word civilized without any judgment whatsoever. I'm not saying using civilized right. in the sense that it's better. That's sure. not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's, it's a different from the classic barbarian, closer to nature style. So, you know... Carlin in this episode describes some of these people who become Christian yet still keep a harem. They still love to split the skulls of their enemies with an axe. They still engage in all the other fun barbarian pastimes. But now they have to do some theological stretching to somehow make it all cool with Christian morality. And that's clearly a bit of a stretch. Now, some of this goes back to the very theme of that we are addressing where I mean I've seen this even in uh, in the series that I just finished the John of Arc series all of the end of that series involves the English who capture John of Arc and obviously they want to kill her she's the one who ruined it all for them or turned the tide of the war they hate her guts but they are no longer the good old fashioned barbarians now they have to find a way to reconcile it with being good Christian. And so whereas if you pick, I don't know, any tribe that engage in pretty... Like people like the Mohawk, for example, in North America, part of the Iroquois Confederacy, these guys made no pretenses about it. You were their enemies. If they capture you, they will burn you into their fires because you are their enemy. There's no need for complicated moral justifications. It's, again, big fish, it's small fish. We captured you, you die. End of story. The English do the same thing, but in order to get to the same result, they have to set up a fake trial, use forged evidence, and hide behind the notion that they are really good guys doing God's will. And this weird struggling between these two instincts is, is interesting and is very specific to 
certain society, particularly Western civilization. Because if you go back to what the Athenians are arguing, to the basic, what they would consider the basic laws of nature, you don't see any of this tension. You know, the relationship between a tiger and a deer, no morality is part of that relationship. It's, you know, the deer is not saying, how can you be so unjust in trying to eat me? I'm just a poor, sweet deer. Why don't you leave me? You know, it's simple. I'm a tiger. You're a deer. Morality has got nothing to do with our interaction. I'm more powerful than you, and you taste incredibly good, so I'll eat you. It's as simple as that. You know? The problem comes in when you're trying to do this while being moral, while being just, while saying that you're doing God's will. Now, clearly, no self-respecting tiger would ever go down that path. They would just teach <laughs> you another story. They are like the Athenians in this dialogue, right? It's like, but this is what part of the struggle that make up the modern world. Or the barbarian would would say he would kill the enemy, and they and he would say the gods favored me, and they would yeah. say, well, how do you know? Because I won. Exactly. <laughs> I would have won otherwise. It's very simple, right? <laughs> it's not complicated. There's no morality. In that sense, it's very Nietzsche, right? Mm-hmm. There's this very sense that morality goes hand in hand with this idea of the will to power. That all the other stuff is some way made up, and, whereas this yeah. is the way the life is in a predatory universe. And that's a good illusion, too, because you know Nietzsche... He didn't like Euripides. Mm-hmm. You know, he looked at Euripides as kind of being one of these latecomers in a civilization who, you know, is no longer just doing tragedy as art. He's really more of a social critic. And he looked at him almost as a subversive element that helped to, on one hand, we would say, maybe looking back today, that he helped civilize the Greek people. Like he was the dissident who was saying, mm-hmm. hey, guys, this isn't OK. We're going around butchering all these people. This is not the way we should be behaving. And you know it. And we know it, that this is not right. Nietzsche looked at it the other way. He said, this is like a subversive element mm-hmm. in Greek society that undermined their strength, that took away like that, that sort of free, barbar- that barbarian freedom they had to yep. act. And now they're sort of these self-doubting Socratic men who are wondering about every little thing that they do and decision they make. And eventually but you know this is these are discussions that we have today about postmodern philosophy mm-hmm. and things like that right you know you find like uh, it was huge today you find conservative philosophers thinkers like jordan peterson and even people who aren't right wing you know mm-hmm. a lot of uh, you know uh, whatever you call intellectual dark web types many of them are left wing and they talk about postmodernism the way that you would expect like uh, like a really reactionary type to talk about it in the sense that these are some you know the, the, the subversive elements are getting us they're, they're, they're making us too self-critical and mm-hmm. too self-questioning so that now we're paralyzed we can't act we're self-doubting too much and you know, so that's how Nietzsche thought of it yeah I mean he has this straight up disgust for that process he refers to it as slave morality right yeah, there's that yeah. idea that's and so it's interesting because we have two opposite archetypes that don't seem to mix incredibly well you know they both make sense in their own way but Clearly, and I think part of the problem that we have here is that what we are looking at in the modern world is that it's neither this or that. It's not the old-fashioned barbarian style. You know, people would be highly uncomfortable if you just go straight Genghis Khan, come in, conquer, slaughter everybody, just because you can. 
And at the same time, it's not the idealized version that you're hoping to actually, that you say to yourself that you are as a good civilized human being, because you don't really match up to the reality either. You have these ideals that are way sweeter, but you don't quite reach most of the time. And yet you don't have the honesty of the old fashioned barbarian who tells it like it is, or like the Athenians are telling it like it is. I mean, Dan Carlin, to use another Carlin moment, jumps into this theme a lot when discussing modern US history. Well, not even just modern, but he always talks about the clash between American ideals and American practice. Now, he's applying it just to the United States. I think the same discussion can be applied to a bunch of other countries and their history, but he's saying the ideals are beautiful. The ideas are awesome. The ideas are a step ahead in uh, what could be human consciousness. The practice feels miserably short of the ideals. So short that it's almost offensive sometimes, in the sense that if you are if you are speaking, you know, if you are talking the talk so well and you do it such a good job at it, then we expect you to believe it, and not just to believe it, but to actually to practice it, because otherwise few hypocrisies bug people more than speaking this beautiful speech and then not living up to it. And it's a theme that in many ways, I mean, you see it in a bunch of things. Like I was thinking, for example, when applied to American Indian history, if one come in with what I keep using because it's a simple image, the big fish eat small fish argument, It sucks to be the small fish. It's not fun to get eaten. It's not fun to get conquered. But it's a little easier to accept because you're going by established rules that everybody understands. You know, you won because you are the big fish. That's it. If, however, the big fish also wants to act morally superior and justified and but ultimately eats you just the same by using raw power, then there's a feeling to it that is adding insult to injury you know it's even harder to accept the conquest like you can get over a loss sure you people tend to get over a loss way harder if they feel they have been cheated if they feel that they lost eventually it's the it's the feeling and you can take this on both sides and i will it's the feeling of a palestinian who feels that they've been booted out of their homeland by a brutal israeli occupation that every once in a while sends drones over and you know, you know, starts shooting missiles at their neighborhood, and then turning on a television somewhere and seeing how Israel's the only democracy in the Middle East, it's the only free and yep. you know such and such country, and how they feel. And then on the other hand, it's how Israelis feel seeing human rights advocates for the Palestinians talk about these victims and these poor people who just want to have their homes. When every once in a while, you know, a suicide bomb is going off, or or some young man is walking into a house in the middle of the night and hacking up a family. And and that's kind of what it is, that kind of hypocrisy that yep. really drives people crazy and drives them further into their corner. And make it so hard to move on from it. You can't move on, probably, because, I think. Yeah, you, you have to clear that up before you can move on. As long as there's that dishonesty in there between two parties, I don't think they can meet. Yep. You know, the resentment will just be too strong and they're talking past each other, you know. And that's like the situation with those two parties in particular. I don't want to get stuck on Israel and sure. Palestine, but... I mean, just bottom line, nothing is going to happen until both of the sides reckon with what they themselves have done. Mm-hmm. And until that's the case, you know, you just, they're not going to be able to get past, the other side is not going to be able to look, they'll, they can possibly forgive the things that happened in the past because there's history and we understand how history works, but they are not going to forgive you sitting there across the table for them and 
speaking to them in bad faith. Yeah. There's just there's no Arguing way to move past it. You are the good guys when you know that you have done stuff. You're ignoring the bad stuff you have done. The que- here's a question I have. Can I throw oh, one more yeah, example yeah. on this before we jump? Because, like, for example, one that I find fascinating from a symbolic standpoint is take something like Mount Rushmore, yeah. right? Which is huh. almost 3 million tourists visit every year. It's considered a classic symbol of American patriotism. And the people who go there sincerely, totally believe, because that's the problem with symbols, is that everybody see what they want yeah. in it. I mean, one of the early terms for the sculpture was considered the shrine of democracy, right? It's this embodiment of freedom and democracy and all of it. Now, obviously, when you look at it from a native standpoint, this was part of the Black Hills, which were Lakota and Cheyenne sacred land. The land is guaranteed to you via the Fort Laramie Treaty. Then the treaty got broken because they discovered gold in the Black Hills. The land is stolen. What you consider your sacred mountain is blasted with dynamite by the people who stole it to carve the faces of their leaders in it. And then we call it a symbol of freedom and democracy. Clearly, freedom and democracy are not the first words that come to mind when looking at Mount Rushmore from a Lakota perspective. Now, the person who goes hand on their heart listening to the national anthem, that is what they see in that symbol. A Lakota is not going to see that. He's seeing something entirely different and a lot darker when looking at the same symbol. And I think that's part of the clash. But sorry, I was it, cutting it, it you off. It reminds me of uh, the Hellenic rulers of, uh, of Israel at the time, Judea, mm-hmm. um, back just before the Maccabean revolt. Is they went in and they had you know conquered the place and took taken over. And uh, so they went and put a Greek uh, statue of a Greek god, a Greek idol, into the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem Temple, and that you could—that's kind of what it's like. I mean, in some ways, yeah. if you were—if you're a native looking up at that thing, I mean, a conquering people came in and then put their monument on top of your sacred object, and I mean, that's an expression of power. You know, it really is like what that is. And the ultimate insult is that you don't do it by saying, "Yeah, we." Yeah. And conquered you. We are stronger. We won. And this is our statement of power. Deal with yeah. it. It's brutal, but it's straight. Yeah. It's straight talk. Is we do this in the name of freedom and democracy. Yeah, here's, and like, here's your flag. Go say the national anthem at it. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And it's kind of like, that's what I mean by the clash between ideals and reality. And that's what I mean by the, the trick. So I guess what's left for us to figure out on this is, the positive and negative. Because the negative, okay, if I can articulate the negative, is the obvious hypocrisy, right? The fact that, you know, finding a way to pat yourself on the back and tell yourself that you're the good guys, when in reality you're just another barbarian bent on pillage and conquest, but you can dress it up better, to me, it's lacking the honesty of a good old-fashioned barbarian. So you, you haven't really moved forward because you haven't embraced for real values that you can put in practice that are different from the good old-fashioned barbarians, but on top of it, you don't even have the honesty of the good old-fashioned barbarians. So you're stuck in no man's land where you haven't really reached these ideals in a meaningful way, but again, you have moved away from saying, you know, meaning what you say, where it's straight, it's in your face, it's clear what the good old-fashioned barbarian would do. So in in one way, we could argue this is a bad thing because it's lacking, uh, it's neither this or that, and it just ends up being insulting to everybody involved. And it's dishonorable. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you could think of it that way, for sure. What do you think would be uh, yeah, I the can, good side? I think I can articulate the good side, or at least kind of grope at it. Um, and it's that 
Well, I started out like this. Um, it's kind of easy to say that uh, it would be better if things were just straightforward. And if mm-hmm. you're going to be a conqueror, go go be a conqueror. Um, civilization can be a difficult thing to mm-hmm. pin down on a as far as a definition goes. But when its opposite shows up, you know exactly what it is. Oh yeah, and. Um, and when its opposite shows up, you realize that it's a gift. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, um, y- you know, uh, people who think that, you know, maybe, well, people would respect America more. Maybe like they wouldn't. That if we would just go out and be the Romans, mm-hmm. if we would just go be the Roman Empire and be straightforward about what we're doing, then, you know, at least people wouldn't have to put up with our hypocrisy. My answer to that is, trust me, they prefer the hypocrisy. <laughs> I know. They definitely prefer the hypocrisy. Um, because the hypocrisy does limit our behavior. Uh-huh. It doesn't stop everything. No. It do, you know, there are, certain, there are a lot of interests at play and things that go on, but it, but it limits it. And even if it didn't limit it in a particular instance or moment, right? I mean, how do you say it limits it when 2 million Vietnamese are dead sure. in, in the Vietnam War? Like what? It's, yeah. as, it's as bad as anything that ever happened in the ancient world. I mean, you know, maybe not as a percentage of the population, but scale-wise, you're talking about two million people dead, right? Um, and so, I, I, I get that argument. I, I would put it this way, though: is nobody but a complete psychopath, and no society that's not completely sort of just. Yeah, I don't even know if societies can necessarily even be this way because there's the, the mind is so disaggregated. Um, that nobody is completely comfortable living in bad faith and living under uh, when they're being hypocrites, right? So in there, it creates a tension. You notice the gap between your behavior and the ideals you're professing. Some part of you sees that gap, and that creates a tension. And there's something in there that in most people... It's hard to say with individuals. Individuals go all sorts of different ways with this. Sometimes they self-destruct or whatever mm-hmm. it is, but... It seems like in a society, the overall trend is to pull that society kicking and screaming toward those ideals. Now, do they ever reach them? No. So they're always, in some level, hypocrites mm-hmm. because they're always professing ideals that they're not living up to. Yep. But if it's pulling them in that direction, if that tension is pulling them, you know, you ask like, you know, you look at the beginning of our country, and obviously. Um, all men are created equal. Okay, really? Like, well, what about these slaves and all these other things, right? Clearly, out of step, our ideals and our behavior. But we eventually freed the slaves. We eventually ended Jim Crow. And without that ideal, if we had just said, hey, look, yeah, we're strong, you're weak, yeah. um, you're our slaves, get used to it, that would be more honest. Sure. There would be less hypocritical. But... Uh, you know, we still own slaves today. Yeah. And so it was that tension. It was that over time, it wasn't everybody at first. It was very few people at first. But at, over time, the people who were like, hey, this is hypocritical. This is not mm-hmm. the thing you're saying you are and that we are, that there's something wrong here. And then maybe it was 5% of the population, but eventually it was 6%. And then eventually it was 7 And eventually people were like, you know what? We can't live with this tension anymore. And it has to change. And so like, it's it's as if... That gap between your ideals and your reality, that's sort of the little Petri dish where, you know, things start to form and ideas start to, you know, that start to pull you in that direction. It doesn't always have to work like that. Uh-huh. You know, sometimes people overcompensate in other directions, but it can, you know, if you let it pull you in the direction of those ideals, I think. Yeah, and I think that's, 
I think you're 110% right on that. It's of course, you know, if you get invaded by a Mongol army in the 1300s, you would wish that these guys were hypocritical and they only did 70% of what they would do rather than 100. Because the 100% of what they're going to do to you is not fun. Now, the 70% is probably not fun either, but again... Real quick, I don't want to jump in because I just talked, but um, there's another way. Uh, here, I'll counter myself a little yeah, bit on this, using your example, which is... Um, on the other hand, with the Mongols coming in, uh, because they're so straightforward about it, you know exactly how to deal with them. Sure. In other words, uh, they come in and they're very straightforward about we're here to conquer and mm-hmm. you're going to submit or you're going to die. There's no big mystery about what their intentions are. And so you can look at the situation and make a decision based on the reality of your situation and say, look, these guys are going to kill us all if we don't submit. But if we don't, or but if we do submit, then we're actually going to be fine. And you know that because the Mongols are straightforward about who they are and what they're about. And so if you do submit, you know what's going to happen. And so you're dealing with somebody on a more realistic basis, whereas... You know, you go sometimes to the United States and, like, our foreign policy seems completely chaotic to a lot of people sometimes. Like, you don't know, like, you have small countries around the world, you know, afraid that if they piss us off, that we might just show up one day. And, you know, so if you're Iran, you better get nuclear weapons because you just never know. And um, and it's because we're not straightforward. You never quite know our mind. You know, it can just sort of go off the rails like that. So that's one one thing. I mean, you could say like you prefer the hip- uh, that the Mongols were sort of hypocrites and it would be dialed back. But on the other hand, you know what you're dealing with. And I think that's why it's a ping pong game where really, I mean, we're taking roles where I was highlighting the bad stuff and you were lighting the good ones and they were flipping. But because the reality is it's both, yeah. right? It's, it's totally both sides of it. You know, the the Athenian argument, which is the Mongol argument, which is, you know, all of the same thing, which is naked truth of power. This is how power operates. Learn how to deal with it. We're being straight with you. Make your choice. And there are no other games played here. Yes, there is something appealing to the clarity. At the same time, if you are on the wrong side of that decision, the things that happen to you, like what happened to the millions, like what happened to anybody who stood up against the Mongols, it's not fun. There's nothing fun. It's just complete annihilation, complete savagery, horrible things done to you and everyone you know. And it's something that gets... that A part of it really gets lost, and it, it comes into the light when you read something like the Iliad, but... Um, you know, we forget sometimes that when we're talking about the butchery of an entire city's yeah. population, of what exactly we're talking about here. We're not talking about uh, professional executioners, like, sort of giving people lethal injections, you know, one by one. We're talking about citizen soldiers who are farmers and craftsmen and other things, the people of Athens, the men of Athens, people who live normal lives when they weren't at war, um, stalking room by room, closet by closet under bed by under bed with blades in their hands and butchering everybody they come across um you know i watched uh i watched the new halloween movie um uh just a little while ago and it's a horrific just absolutely horrifying movie you've got this guy michael myers and there's all these scenes of him sort of walking into houses of unsuspecting people and stabbing them with butcher knives and beating them to death and everything and it's so horrific to watch and then you realize that like well, that's what we're talking about right uh-huh. here. That is what we're talking about here. Yep. 
And um, there is, um, there's a level of savagery and aggression involved that goes beyond sort of they put all the men to the sword and took the women and children into slavery. There's a real brutality and aggressiveness to it that I think even today, like most people couldn't manage. If you were to put a sword in somebody's hand today and say, there, just go do these things, I think a lot of people start throwing up. They might faint. That's a good thing. Obviously, that's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, that's You know, that we've domesticated ourselves that fully. But, I mean, you're talking about a real kind of uh, aggressive loosing, you know, that's happening. And... um, you know, that was kind of why, uh, what led me after I read The Trojan Women to go back and reread the Iliad and why I talked so much about it here is like, as much as there's like a, in the Athenian portion of the dialogue, this sort of cold, calculating, big fish, small uh-huh. fish, I kept coming back to the idea that like, yeah, that's true. Like, they're, as they're in there sort of giving their discussions, there's sort of this big fish, small th- fish kind of thing going on. But in the background of what they're actually talking about is, do as we say, or these men are going to go through your houses and butcher all of you. Yep. And so there's a, and, and when you bring in the context of, you know, the fact that they were going insane at that time, going and launching their, you know, ill-fated uh, attack against Syracuse and making all these crazy decisions um, that out of frustration, you know, and out of paranoia about their other city states might you know rise up against them if they don't show strength and they're feeling weak because they can't go after sparta and their homeland and so they just got to do something that there is something more to it than just cold calculation here Mm -hmm. that there's like an aggressive impulse that's being satisfied and so that's why i brought in the achilles thing is like he needed to just kill something and there's just this a this pent-up rage and aggression that's gonna it's gonna be vented on something somebody somewhere and um, I would even actually just turn it around almost in a little bit or at least like take it back mm-hmm. one more step is that in a way I would almost say that the Athenian speech or I would suspect that mm-hmm. their speech about the cold calculating interests of their state, that that is almost a hypocrisy, mm. that they needed to butcher somebody. They needed to kick somebody's ass, and they had to come up with a way to sort of... But they are also giving, they are putting power in the other people's hands to say, we want, True. if you just press this button. True. So we are not, we're not setting up an inevitable conclusion, and we're going to go that way anyway, regardless of what you do. We're actually, hey, the, the, we are being up front, the choice, ball is in your hands. You decide how to play. True. You want to play rough? We'll massacre all of you. You want to be our subjects? We'll pat you on the back and you just pay us. Yeah. And, but yeah, it's, I think like wherever you feel an inclination to fall on this side of the argument, whether you want to argue that, yeah, it's better to be a less than perfect idealist who's trying to be a little more civilized and that that tension, that hypocritical tension between reality and practice is actually a force for good because it helps people get a little better, maybe not as good as you wish they were, but at least a little better. Well, you can definitely make that argument, and there's lots of good evidence for it. You can also make the argument that hypocrisy is hypocrisy that is actually straight-up offensive because you end up behaving barely better than a straight-up barbarian, and on top of it, cheating your way about it, being duplicitous about it, being lacking that integrity to live by your own values. Both are real, okay? So whichever one, like I could argue either one, right? Because that's the reality is that you can sort of see it as a 50-50 proposition, you know? Whenever you make one argument, you have to say also, but, and there's this whole other argument. And they are, 
you know, by inclination, each of us may want to side more one way or another, but this is why it's a fun game to play where we're taking the roles about who's going to argue what, because we could flip those yeah. roles and we can argue just them the same because they are, they're both real. It also makes a difference if you're talking about an individual life or like the life of a society because, you know, it, it does pull you only very, very gradually. And in the course of one person's life, it might not pull you enough to make much of a difference at all. And so maybe in an individual's life, it is better to err on the side of, uh, you know, not living in bad faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in a society as a whole, we're dealing with longer periods yeah. of time. You know, you had Germanic barbarians, but look, uh, those are Germans today living in Berlin. And mm-hmm. how did they get there? And they didn't get there by, um, you know, the thing about hypocrisy is in dealing with things like this is that if you have no hypocrisy in you at all, then that means you are perfectly fine with the way you are doing things and every the way things are right yeah. now. And if that's the which means things will never change. Sure. And then you ask the question like, does anybody have the right to feel that way about themselves? That there's nothing that they're mm-hmm. doing right now that could and should be improved that they're not sure. that they're not working toward or, or that they're not working toward or you know improving right now. And um, I think we would say most or that that's not true of anybody. There's nobody that should be in that state. So there's always, um, well, yeah. I mean, it's just it's being honest about your shortcomings, I guess, when they happen and things like that. It's different, but it reminds me of uh, that. Must be so difficult because it's like I so can't relate because not having any shortcomings, I don't know what any of this yeah, stuff would be, means. I, I mean, I don't know why I'm trying to talk to you about this. Yeah, it's, I need a, it's a very foreign to me. This whole thing, but I remember back in. Uh, Here's maybe an example in sort of real time. Is uh, I remember back in 2014 when uh, Russia annexed Crimea, and President Obama gave a speech about it, and you know, he was saying you can't do this, like uh, blah blah blah, and kind of standard stuff. But he, uh, I'll you know, never forget the uh, you know he said um, modern civilized countries do not go around invading other countries, and you're like. Is this guy serious? Like, is he really? This is the president of the United States that's saying this in 2014 after Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and all of these things. Like, is he serious? But the thing is, is a lot of people shared that feeling with me where they saw that and they're like, are are we serious? Like, is this where we're at now? And you wonder if like, you know, it's that thing where like people in engage in hypocrisy because it's easy at the, in, a, in the moment but nobody likes being a hypocrite yeah and you know that starts to it can either destroy if you don't have the strength to eventually come to terms with your hypocrisy and you know sort of just shed all that to start living in good faith again then it'll destroy you but if you can eventually confront that confront your deception and your hypocrisy then you know even if a little bit over time it starts to pull you in a different direction and I mean that's kind of that's how I have to think about it because I mean, like you said, you know, alluding to the Dan Carlin episode, it's about America. I mean, we're just the country par excellence for that. I mean, we really, really are. Like, because we have this revolutionary past and we have all these ideals about freedom that are not that are sincerely held. I mean, they are sincerely held, and they are beautiful. Yeah, they are absolutely beautiful. And um, you know, it's it's it's. Uh, you, know, you ask yourself the question of what kind of country we would be if we didn't have them and yeah. what kind of world you know we'd be in. And it would be different uh, in ways that we probably wouldn't like. Um, and again, it's hard to say, though. It, it is hard to say because the modern dilemma is that all of us 
live in this sort of dual state all the time. And so we are, we have that ennui that existentialists deal with all the time where we're living kind of inauthentically and kind of in bad faith. A little bit, it's in there and it bothers us and it's just this little kernel that eats away all the time. And that's sort of the price of not being a barbarian. And whether that is worth it or not is an open question, depending on who you are, you know. <laughs> and I think that's exactly at the crux of what it means to be alive today. Stuck somewhere, in, not actually stuck, in flux. Somewhere in between being a straight-up barbarian and heading for a destination that we're very far from, and who knows if we can ever reach, of being living in more idealized form of civilization we are not in an idealized form of civilization and we are not straight up barbarians yeah we are trying to figure out what exactly we are along the way and whether we are just barbarians who lack the guts to be honest or we are just proto ideally civilized people that we are taking slow incremental steps in that direction so that one day can look back and say whoa we're so much better than we used to be the game is still very much on outcome is for it's anybody's guess and i think that's what makes this whole thing pretty damn interesting the thing that you really gotta watch out for in societies and this is something i worry about in our Mm -hmm. own is um you can go past the point of no return with your own hypocrisy. And um, I really believe, reading history, that uh, a lot of powerful societies collapse because people lose faith in their own society. Yep. They say, what is, what, what, why am I bothering giving my emotion and identity over to this thing anymore when all I hear are lies? Mm-hmm. And the absolute best example of it... Um, that we've had because partly because there's so much literature um, from people who were there, but and because it's recent, it's the Soviet Union. You know, um, you read uh, David Remnick's book. He's uh, the editor of the New Yorker. Wrote the book uh, Lenin's Tomb about the last days of the Soviet Union. Or you read Solzhenitsyn, and uh, it absolutely just hits you in the face that this had become a society where lying about the nature and state of their society. It was a legal requirement. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would be shuffled off to prison if you did not repeat and accept, yep. you know, the the standard lies. And I mean, every, you know, America, every society has got all these things. Um, this is a, became a society where it was an absolute society of yep. lies. It was a hall of mirrors mm-hmm. and everybody knew it. And they had to live in this state all the time. And in 1989, look, the, the Soviet Union could have gone on for a lot longer materially speaking resources wise is all those kind of things nobody was going to conquer mm-hmm. it and you know they could keep could have kept their economy going in a degraded state for a while but it just got to a point where the population they just didn't believe in the society anymore they were like why are we keeping this thing yeah. going and you can get there and you get to a point where enough people hear the president of the United States make a sanctimonious speech about how civilized countries don't go around invading other countries when we know we've invaded a couple countries in just the last few years under almost no pretense, um, enough of that goes on for a long enough period of time. And eventually people just start to check out and they say, Why, what's worth defending and caring about here anymore? That can happen. And that's very much what has been going on for the last 50, 60 years or so. There's, We are not in the historical period where people blindly believe this image that people put forward. Now we know it was all lies, but people honestly believed it. 
Now the curtain has been pulled and we find out all the nastiness of how the real game of power work behind the scenes. And so people got cynical about it, which in some way is good because you get a measure of reality and you're not deluded anymore. On the other hand, it's bad because if you don't have, if you lost all hope in, in that things can be fair, that things can be good, then you're realizing that things are a lot uglier than you thought doesn't really help you. And this is sort of where we're stuck today in a way, where like even if you look at elections or you see either the old-time nasty cynical politicians, which nobody likes, or you see the quote-unquote outsiders who, you know, often they are not really a good alternative. And mm-hmm. so you find some, in many ways, modern society finds itself stuck with not being able to go back to the comforting lies of the past and not really able to take the next step in a good way, just being stuck with, okay, you are not good just because you are not one of those guys. You are still a different kind of... And that, I think, is that precise problem of being stuck between these two places, where the place where we are heading is still far, and the place where we have come from, we are no longer comfortable. And so we are somewhere on a journey, and... It's anybody's guess to figure out where exactly the journey is going to take. We know where we're trying to get. The question is, will we or won't? Yeah, and we're in a confused state now because at least for a long time, you you had a set of ideals that everybody more or less agreed on and then a a set of behaviors that everybody could see and there was a tension there. We're kind of in a period now where we've got major disagreements over basic values. Mm -hmm. And when you start getting into a situation like that, over where where we even should be moving, whether the place yep. that you you say your ideals should be dragging us is a place I really want to be or not, that's when a society's got some soul searching to do. Most you know? definitely. So see the crazy places where you can die by talking about the million dialogue from twenty four hundred years ago, and suddenly how it applies to right here, right now. On that note. I would say we can wrap. Thank you so much for the chat on this. It was fun. We're looking forward to it. with this i want to thank you guys very much for listening i also want to thank justin maples and josh riddle for sponsoring history on fire on patreon at the 50 dollars level susan moss o'donnell and rob edinger for sponsoring at the 100 dollars level and now let me thank the companies that have sponsored this particular episode big thank you to article.com for sponsoring this episode 
This guy sent me some amazing furniture, chairs, tables. My mom has a whole new set of stuff for her living room. Uh, my mom, by the way, she worked in design, so with her expert eye, she could confirm my layman's impressions that this furniture is awesome. It's beautiful, well-made, Scandinavian simplicity, well-designed. Uh, on top of it, not that expensive, because uh, Article is an online-only furniture company, so by eliminating the layers of all the middlemen, they are able to keep the prices low and the quality high. On top of it, they have a great shipping policy, only $49 for no matter how many items you order. You can have like 10 gazillion dollars worth of stuff, still $49 shipping. So not a bad gig. 30-day return policy. And on top of it, they have an offer for you guys. Um, $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim that, visit article.com forward slash history. Again, that's article.com forward slash history. I've been eating Blue Apron for on a weekly basis for the last couple of years and who this has been so good for me. Uh, what can I tell you? The food is amazing. The recipes are pretty easy to follow and you end up, uh, you know, you follow step by step and you feel like you've been at cooking school for the last five years because the results are quite amazing. So I strongly urge you to get, give it a try. Plus, the sweet thing is that these guys do a special deal for History on Fire listeners. So you guys can check out this week's menu and get $60 off at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire. So even if you just decide to try it once, that way you find out whether you have the time to put into it, whether how easy it actually is, how tasty the food is. $60 off, you get to try about 3 meals or so, I believe that's what $60 got you, so not a bad gig. Try it out. Robin Hood happens to be one of my all-time favorite quasi-historical figures, so I'm quite a bit excited to be sponsored by Robinhood.com. Uh, what these guys do, uh, they are an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, crypto... All of that commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, and it's a fairly non-intimidating way for newcomers to the stock market to invest for the first time. One of the big highlights of these guys, they have you know other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade. Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees, trade stocks, and all of that. You keep your profits, so that's quite a plus. On top of it, Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. So sign up at onfire.robinhood.com. Again, that's onfire.robinhood.com. This episode of History on Fire is also brought to you by 4hims.com, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skincare, sexual wellness for men some crazy statistics I was reading some 66% of guys experience hair loss by the age of 35 40% of men by age 40 struggle with ED these guys at 4hims.com try to solve those problems in the easiest possible way you don't need an in-person doctor visit for a prescription everything can be done online they 
basically sell you the generic version which is considerably cheaper but works the same than some of the name brand for the top hair loss and ED products. You can try their products for a month starting today for just $5. So while supplies last, only $5 for History on Fire listeners. This would cost, needless to say, would cost a whole lot more if you were to go any other route. So go to 4hims.com forward slash history and the number 5. Again, that's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com forward slash history and the number 5. Can't beat this deal, so check them out. This episode of History on Fire is also sponsored by Audible. If you have wondered whether you may want to try an Audible membership, this is a good time to do it since you have a special offer. For this particular episode, of course, the classic textbook for what we're going to be discussing in this episode is uh, The Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. And of course, Audible has that book in uh, audio format, so you can check it out there. There are also many, many, many other selections from motivational books, mystery thrillers, histories, bestsellers, you name it. You can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two Audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. On top of it, you can uh, you get to have an audiobook library you keep forever, even if you cancel. So right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month, more than half off the regular price. So for more, you can go check it out at audible.com forward slash HOF. Again, that's audible.com forward slash HOF. Or you can text HOF to 500-500. Again, text HOF to 500-500. Two of my regular sponsors from day one have been Datsusara and Onnit. They sponsored this episode as well. Uh, Onnit has 10,000 different products. I enjoy pretty much all of them. But today I want to shine the spotlight on their fitness section. They have a whole bunch of offerings from kettlebells. They have some of the coolest kettlebells on the market. Not only highly functional, but those things are a piece of artwork, I swear. I have quite a few sitting here in my living room. They are amazing to look at and great to work out with. They have all sorts of other things for less than conventional workouts, from steel clubs, steel maces. They have instructional on how to use all this equipment and this is barely scratching the surface of only the fitness section which is only one of several including apparel, food, supplements that Onnit offers the place where to check them out is onnit.com forward slash history again that's onnit.com forward slash history where you can receive a 10% discount and my other sponsor that I mentioned is Datsusara. You can find these guys at the letter D, the letter S, the word gear.com, so dsgear.com. I use their products every single day. I carry all my money in a Datsusara wallet. I go to school with a computer bag, Datsusara. I go traveling with Datsusara backpacks. When I train in Jiu-Jitsu, I'm wearing a Datsusara gi. I use their stuff all the time. Why? A, because they are sweet people. B, because they all their materials overwhelmingly made with hemp, high quality, very durable. 
I like the look. I could go on, but just go check them out for yourself at dsgear.com. Before we get going, a couple of quick shout-outs. One, I want to mention that in the spring of 2020 I'll be part of a tour going to Naples, Rome and just about everything in between. It's going to be a tour hosted by Geek Nation Tours and we'll be focusing on Gladiators. So if you guys have enjoyed the Gladiators episode that we have done a few months back, this is the tour for you. You get to travel through Italy, check out ancient gladiatorial sites from marinas to ancient Roman ruins and the whole thing, and I'll be along for the ride. I'll include uh, a link in the episode notes, but again, these guys are geeknationtours.com. Also, if you guys drink coffee, please do me a favor and check out snowroast.com. Again, snowroast.com. The code HOF18 gets you a discount. Again, the code is HOF18. They have amazing coffee. They made, uh, they send me chocolates. They send me all sorts of amazing goodies. Check them out if you drink coffee. And also shout out to nevertapgear.com. These guys make knee braces for people working out to protect their joints. They're probably going to add also elbow braces, wrist braces and other stuff that's coming up. And they also have the amazing Tomoe Gods and Female Samurai Rush Guard designed by Savannah Rian. So check them out at nevertapgear.com. Having said of that, thank you so much for listening again and I wish you a wonderful day.